Welcome to this Laurian Sport podcast with me, Sean Cottrell, the CEO of Laurian Sport. If you haven't tuned in before, the Laurian Sport podcast is here to help you understand the latest legal issues and developments from the world of sport. I'm delighted to welcome our guest today, Daniel Stuck, who is the Senior Legal Counsel with Tennis Australia. He's worked in law firms such as Kelly Hassel Quinn, Quill, sorry, and McPherson Kelly, and he's a former legal counsel for the Australian Ice Hockey League. Um, he's also shortlisted for the Sport and Entertainment Lawyer of the Year at the 2020 Corporate Council Award. So congratulations on that, Daniel. Um, now, what a year it's been. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there's been so many things going on. One of the, you know, one of the first sort of major sports events globally that were back. Um, uh, I believe was the Australian Open, which obviously you were involved in. Um, do you want to talk about that experience? You know, for we, I can live vicariously through you about what it's like to have, you know, to be in a stadium yeah. full of fans. Um, can you talk about, I guess, first of all, your role at Tennis Australia, and then about you know all the process and work that went into um, uh, you know, getting the Australian Open um, actually running and then completed yeah absolutely i mean more than have, thank you firstly thank you for having me and um it's great to be here and very delighted to talk to you about what we went through with the australian open and and what was happening um over the last uh, last couple of months it's obviously been very busy for all of us here at tennis australia look for us you know the australian open was very different this year um some major changes um, it, that came into play. But, you know, to, to take you back to my role, I'm a, as you said, I'm a senior legal counsel at Ten Tennis Australia and my focus has always has been over the last 18 months integrity and compliance. So some classic sports law issues dealing with things like anti-doping, anti-corruption, behavioural issues, code of conduct issues, member protection, safeguarding children. So a lot of compliance work. Um, and running disciplinary matters related to those um, to those issues. Now, obviously, COVID changed that, and um, when COVID kicked in, we realised pretty quickly that there was going to be a, a a big biosecurity focus for our events for the summer of 2021 in Australia, and I sort of pivoted my role to focus on that biosecurity compliance. And looking at how we could, well, firstly, if we could run these events safely, and then if so, how. So in practice, so it's interesting actually because now I want to talk to you about your wider role. <laughs> but we'll come back to this to, to, to the open. But the the one thing that 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 we saw over the last year was a lot of people involved, particularly focusing on compliance and integrity, found that the their normal sort of day to day work increased significantly um yeah we saw we always said it was that covid sort of presented an extra work stream i think someone i can't remember who it was one of one of our events someone described it that way from an in-house perspective and from and, and, and it's been backed up by a lot of the prior practice lawyers we know um but from your perspective then how did that add an extra level of complication and how did you as, as tennis australia kind of uh tackle the issues because if i'm right in thinking there was a lot of obviously um, as there is over the last year or so, um, a lot of uh, politics around um, you know, sports returning, uh, fans in stadia, 
athletes traveling. Yeah. You know, so how how did that all sort of sort of pan out for you, and how did Tennis Australia approach it, digging with it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's such a big issue for us, um, and it, look, especially for major events, and in particular international major events like the Australian Open, because COVID nineteen added a whole other layer of complexity to the running of those events. Firstly, we look at major events are bringing masses of people together and in a COVID environment that's obviously seen as a key transmission risk so the layers of governance and regulation around holding those events increased exponentially uh, just from a general point of view now when it came to our events we had the added issue of the international borders um, and bringing in you know, close to a 1,000 people, a 1,000 players in their entourage, as well as critical workforce and, um, and officials from various countries all around the world. And we had to bring them into Australia where at the moment and still Australia requires all international arrivals to complete 14 days of quarantine. So the borders are not open. And as a result of that, we had to make sure that what we were designing we had to factor in that 14-day quarantine into our event planning so that's another major challenge for the organization and the other aspect yes oh sorry i'll let you continue sorry no no go go go. i was gonna say well for for that then for the athletes how did you deal with that because no doubt they would want access to to train you know you don't want to go into a major yeah, event and not being able to train for 14 days. So how did you address that? So this was an ongoing discussion as part of the event planning. Um, and we worked very closely with the Victoria with the um the Victorian government as well as um our federal government around all of the the possibilities of how we could do this. And one of the big things one of the big focus areas was that as you say for athletes to be in a room for 14 days not training not moving it's actually quite dangerous for them in terms of their preparation for a major event so part of the challenge for the quarantine was to manage the public health risk of bringing you know as i say close to a thousand people from countries that have been heavily impacted by COVID. so the public health risk of that coming into Australia, but also managing the player safety issues around enabling them sufficient time to train, um, to do gym workouts, to work their nutrition, factoring all of that in and balancing that competing priority. And so what we had to do was design a quarantine program that, and it really was like an intricate, intricate ballet really to get the all of the various players from their isolated quarantine room down to tennis courts to train, to then go to the gym. Everything had to be very intricately organized because nobody was allowed to have contact with, it wasn't like you could just walk around and speak to whoever you wanted. It was very, very heavily regulated and guarded and everybody who participated was not able to just wander off. So you had to just go to your court, train, uh, and then move directly to gym. 
Yeah, yeah. And so, so from your perspective, then, from a legal standpoint, um, it sounds to me that as much as your role uh, was around sort of public relations and communication uh, and logistics, as much as it was a, 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 a sort of legal issues, but from on the legal point, what sort of That's right, complications yeah. did that did that throw up? Was it um, sort of service level agreements with uh, people cleaning, or was it? Um, you know, uh, issues to do with insurance. What was the, what were the sort of added uh, legal complications that arose from that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the the primary one was a compliance point. We had to make sure that everything we did complied with all regulations, all directions from the government. It was absolutely critical that we maintained the trust of our key partners, and and the government was one of those because this event couldn't be held without the support of the government. So. We had to design a program that complied with everything that the government expected of us, and that was enshrined in various legislation, was enshrined in different regulations and directions, and so we had to make sure that everything was very tight in terms of how we delivered all of those aspects. There were also, as you, sorry, yeah, sorry, no, no, you go, you go on. Sorry, I was jumping the gun. <laughs> no, but but there were, but as you say, there were also a myriad of agreements that that went into. Um, the delivery of all of this, um, uh, all of this quarantine program, and and you might remember this. This actually got quite a bit of press that we had arranged for a number of hotels to um, to participate in the quarantine program, and one of those hotels actually decided they didn't want to to participate um, as part of the quarantine program about two weeks before the. Uh, players were supposed to arrive so obviously we had to pivot again and look at contingency plans look at what other options were out there and redesign um, what we were doing to fit this new change circumstance and how did you deal with that because that must have been like heart-wrenching <laughs> like or gut-wrenching as i say um you know putting all that work in and you go oh no because i would imagine there yeah. wasn't much you know you didn't have like uh, a lot of capacity um absolutely you know, to, to, i think yeah to do with such something like that absolutely and and i think one of the key lessons we learned as a legal team but as a business and as an organization was resilience because there were a number of setbacks along the way there were a number of challenges thrown at us along the way and being having that gr- mindset of really adapting to whatever circumstances were thrown at you was critical and that was one of the first ones that really sort of changed the course of the way we were planning on delivering the event. We had many others, so we got used to it. <laughs> and yeah. we, we got used <laughs> to dealing with all these different scenarios that are getting thrown our way. That was one of them. And it, it was a little bit disheartening, but at the same time, we were planning for, for a myriad of different scenarios. We never were relying on just one scenario A. We had scenario b c d ready to go and we just had to adapt and 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 activate those plans as as required and so you you mentioned resilience there um obviously a lot of people talk about that at the moment about what it is to be resilient but in terms of the learnings that you sort of took away from that one of them that you mentioned was being adaptable so uh, you know being resilient to you know or you having a good uh risk and compliance strategy would be that is again when you thought for as many scenarios as you can and you adapt and change 
as quickly as you can. What other, um, I guess, sort of insights do you have in terms of what you learn and what you may take forward as an organization, but as a legal team going forward? Was, you know, did it, you know, are you communicating mm. differently now, for example? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, one of the key ones that um, it's a really, it's a really interesting question, and, and we do think about this a lot. One of the key ones that that I've certainly been thinking about is the way we deliver our advice and the way we empower our business. And a lot of the time, I think, you know, there's quite a linear relationship between client and advisor when it comes to the legal team. And you know, the client comes to you with a problem and it's the legal team's job to look at it, analyze it, research, consult, and then put together a coherent strategy for a potential solution that's practical for the business. But what we were trying to do when it came to um, the biosecurity arrangements for the Australian Open and the lead-in events was to actually empower the business to develop their own solutions and really look at giving the business a framework to work within but then actually lean on the expertise of the business to help develop solutions and, and ideas for these novel problems that COVID-19 was throwing up. So it sort of became a more collaborative process, the, the, um, the delivery of advice. It, it was less linear and more a case of let's, let's work together, let's brainstorm ideas because everything that we were dealing with from a COVID-19 point of view was new. Nobody in the world at this point in time had had the, um, the foresight to hold an international event during a pandemic in front of crowds um, in an environment where we basically eradicated the virus. So there was no playbook and it was all about using the different ideas that are out there to come up with the best possible solutions and, and, and best, best ways of doing things. And do you think that that... One thing I've been reflecting on is that we definitely saw for periods of time more collaboration, you know, mm. enforced collaboration. Um, Absolutely. The, the stakes are quite high. Mm. I, I wonder how, and I'd be interested to get your thoughts on this, how going forward, how much of this really sticks in terms of, you know, because when everyone's focused on delivering a, an event, of this nature, as you said, with all of the fans there, all of the, yeah, it, there's, everyone can understand that it's mission critical that everyone works collaboratively because otherwise it all falls apart. Whereas in the say n normal times, you can get away without working collaboratively and they're yeah, it's, oh, you're spot on. Yeah. Yeah. We, we've thought about this. It's, it's really interesting you bring this up, Sean, because actually, um, I think a lot of what we did, what we implemented, um, during the Australian Open was actually just an acceleration of what we were already trying to do. And so certainly it was more of a, it gave us a great excuse to fast track a lot of the changes that we thought we, we could make to the, within the organization. And as you say, collaboration, that's, that's just an ongoing challenge for so many different organizations. But this yeah. gave us the, the actual reason to to totally redesign the way we do things and a lot of people came out of that saying how why wouldn't we continue like this why wouldn't we continue to to really work with all the other areas of the business more closely i think that's been one of the key positives and and would you say then has that 
because there's one thing to work collaboratively and there's one thing to work there's another thing yeah. sorry to work collaboratively well um yeah. you say but i sound i'm taking I'm, I'm getting from what you're saying though that not only did you everyone work collaboratively you know to, to get the job done and as we know from sports teams right just because you you know people are winning titles doesn't mean everyone in the businesses or everyone in the team sorry uh, are friends as such but it also yeah. sounds to me that from what you're saying that there uh, it was an enjoyable process and one that that people um it's sort of if i'm right in, in listening to what you're saying interpreting it correctly that you it built it built better relationships across the business as well as working collaboratively that also created an opportunity yeah, for you to get to know each other and i think that's right um i think enjoy is is perhaps a strong word i don't know whether we all enjoyed um, all the challenges that were thrown up but i think we embraced it and i think we were galvanized around the the goal and i think that was the key that that everybody within the organization was singularly focused on delivering these events in the most COVID safe way possible and really took that responsibility very seriously. So we had a whole organization moving in the, in the same direction. And I think when that happens, there's more collaboration just naturally because we're all thinking about the same goal. We're all working towards that same goal and we're embracing the idea that that everybody has something to contribute to, to that goal. Do you think then, so what was the challenge with bringing the spectators back? Obviously, you mm. were in an environment where, uh, yeah, Australia's you know, dealt with this really well um, compared to many other countries, including my own. Um, mm. Were you just in an environment where it was just taken that, that everyone was COVID forward that way? Or was it the case that everyone still had to go under regular testing um for fans yes. there oh. yeah i can just, just go into that then please yeah absolutely and i think it's worth touching on a bit of the background before i go into that because victoria and melbourne where the australian open and the leading events were held has done you know without wanting to get too political it's done a great job in largely eradicating the virus but the journey to that point was hard fought and actually, you know, I'm not sure if you're aware, but Melbourne went through one of the strictest lockdowns in the world. And in about, in around August, September, Melbourne was in the middle of a, a lockdown that lasted, ended up lasting over 100 days. So we had seen cases growing and through that lockdown, as well as a number of other initiatives, um, cases started to fall. And, and it was around that October time where, suddenly the cases had stopped altogether. Um, but that background is important because it shapes the mindset of the city. And those freedoms that slowly started to emerge were hard fought. And we knew that every that by running these events, we couldn't it was really important that we didn't compromise those freedoms that had been hard, hard, hard won. So it was certainly not a given that spectators would be allowed on site and that um, it would just be a free-for-all. And one of the big challenges and one of the big changes for the Australian Open 2021 was all the, the different COVID-safe initiatives that we put in place, not only to meet regulation, but to ensure that this event was safe for the players, the entourage, their entourage, the workforce, but also the fans 
and the patrons who were on site and enjoying that experience. And there were so many, um, you know, from a, a broad brush perspective, you know, there were, we changed the, um, the site, uh, the site setup. There were three different zones, um, that were put in place where spectators could only attend one of those zones so that we had for contact tracing purposes, we knew exactly where each of the spectators were. So we broke up the site into three different zones, which was a big change for Tennis Australia because normally we, you know, our events are very much a free roaming event where you can go to all the different courts. Um, so that was a big change for the spectators. But we also put in place initiatives around physical distancing, mask compliance at various points in certain situations, um, enhanced hygiene, um, testing of various uh, of, no doubt, of various stakeholders. And no doubt at some points as well, then, if you're creating these three zones in what was an open uh, area, then that also then has a knock-on effect in terms of health and safety, fire risk and, and all that as well, right? So the logistics side gets, gets um, I would imagine, exactly. you know, much, much exactly. more complicated quite quickly. Um, 100%. Said, it, yeah. it had an effect. It had a massive impact on every aspect of the, the event. Changing that fundamental nature meant that, as you say, yes, emergency management had to change the way that we start the event had to change because the event was also zoned. We made sure that our staff were only in one particular zone each day. And how often how often were you doing uh, testing throughout the tournament or as in with, with both athletes and um, yeah or, and staff? Or was it just that, as I said, that because it was a COVID clear area that, that it was just assumed that everyone was COVID clear and then if something was to outbreak, you could use test and, and trace? So, yeah, good question. Um, I think for the, let's start with the different different stakeholder groups. When it yeah. came to the players and the entourage, during quarantine, they were tested every, they were tested before, they had to have a negative test before they got on one of our chartered flights towards, to Melbourne. They were then tested every day for the 14 days of their quarantine. So they had to get 14 negative tests to leave quarantine. And that was onerous and the players were not used to that level of testing but it was absolutely critical because cases we did have a couple of cases in that quarantine environment and through that testing that strict testing regime we were able to spot the cases quickly and um, ensure that those cases were isolated before there was any intermingling with uh, amongst the amongst the the athlete cohort so that was absolutely critical and there was also testing done for uh, any symptom development uh, if if that arose during the event and also before the players left left the country um, similarly for workforce we had a number we implemented a number of different systems to and to get on top of any early symptom development, players, uh, workforce, excuse me, had to complete um, health declaration, daily health declarations. There was health screenings before they came on site, um, and there was fever clinics on site. So, um, at any stage, those workforce, if they developed symptoms, would be required to leave site, isolate, get tested, etc. So, testing became a, a, a big focus for for our tournament and 
any time we were made aware of these suspected cases, we activated a number of processes and protocols to get on top of um, contact tracing early should the uh, worst-case scenario eventuate and one of these cases turn out to be um, positive. Now, I just want to stress that uh, as it played out, we only have one case uh, outside of quarantine for the whole um, whole event, and that was a quarantine worker um, at uh, at the Grand Hyatt, which was one of the hotels in the program. But, so that's a ph- phenomenal result, really. But yeah, but really. we did have all these processes and protocols ready, and they were activated, um, you know, daily, so that we were ready to ready to respond. Wow. And that's, uh, uh, congratulations on that. And it was great to see and, um, you know, encouraging as, as, you know, with the likes of the UFC and, you know, we've had some fans back here. Um, you know, it's just great to see anywhere that, that you know, in New Zealand as well, um, where there's something, you know, it, it gives you a lot of joy to see a sense of normality. Um, you know, and just the roar of the crowd to hear that again was fantastic, it, you know, in that tennis environment. Um, just so good to hear the roar when you when you know someone like a Novak Djokovic hit one of those, you know, backhand winners down the line. To hear the roar of the crowd, phenomenal. So good to hear again. Yeah, absolutely. And so, how does this, um, how does things stand for you, sort of moving forward at the moment, um, in yeah. terms of the wider work that you do uh, with Tennis Australia? Um, what's the sort of um, protocols that you've got now? Is it you? Are you just back to normal or now have you had to implement some of these things you did for the tournament across the board um yeah for the open yeah so COVID-19 is still we're still living with COVID-19 so we can't pretend that it, it doesn't exist and we are still we still have in place a number of COVID safe protocols around just our office environment generally um and of course we make sure that we're complying with all government regulations and directions which are constantly changing depending on the nature of um, what's happening um, at the at the time in within Australia but I suppose that you know there's still following the event there's now this period where you know you look back you look at sort of your core business as usual work and there's a renewed focus on that and then and there's also discussions and and considerations around what 2022 will look like for us um and whether i think it's pretty clear that there will be some role for biosecurity but what that role will be and and what the the factors might be that that impact the extent to which biosecurity is important to what the role that biosecurity plays in 2022 brilliant and what would you say if you're looking back over the last year for you, what are the sort of key takeaways? What what would you say if you had any sort of profound learnings from it, or other mm. than obviously the collaboration that we talked about? Um, yeah. Have you sort of step back and said, right, um, have you reappraised how you approach work or life for that yeah. matter? And um, yeah, how has it impacted you? <laughs> oh, look, in so many different ways. Um, I could talk about this for a while, Sean. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, Look, let's start personally, and then I can move on to some professional ones as well for you. But personally, just in terms of you know the the human side of it, I think it really impacted me in terms of understanding what motivates me and drives me. Um, and you know, we were challenged, and it was a very difficult period. So during those times, you do think about 
you know, what is it that gets me going on a day-to-day basis? And, and it was, you know, the, the importance of, our, of the task really I found as something that, that kept me going when things got when times got tough. So that was really interesting from my perspective. It was so, also so, interesting. So, so on that point, the importance of the task, and, and I, I'm a pain when I always ask people this, but why? Was it actually the objective of, you know, you know delivering the event itself and what that means, means to people? Delivering it, it safely, Sean. So right. it, was, it was all about, for me, for, for our organisation, everything was geared around making sure that the delivery of this event was done safely and that COVID-19, the risks associated with that were mitigated in the best possible way. You can't eliminate the risk, but we took that responsibility very seriously. And, and, and I think it added a new dynamic to the work we did. And was that, yeah, we talk about people been working in sport and sport, such a broad house as such, or, you know, of, of different activities mm. and different types of organization. One of the, one of the things that most people would to say that when they do for a large proportion of people working in sport normally the human element and what sport means to them at some point is, is always is is normally a, a driving force so for you on the safety front was it then and sorry to draw out this point but i do think it's interesting uh to, to, to sort of analyze from my perspective at least which is do you think then the safety element was the fact that that actually i'm here to make ensure that you know, we prevent any harm to people because essentially you care about people and you want people to enjoy the tournament and, and, and exactly and, and no doubt. right okay cool yeah so so yeah, you're really exactly. sort of reconnecting with that sort of some people would say that the higher purpose of sport to a certain degree and its social um sort of impact and importance exactly i mean our events bring a lot of joy excitement and fun to the public generally and we always want to deliver that um every year for all the fans whether they're on site or watching the broadcast, it brings a lot of joy. And, that, and that's something we're very proud of. Um, and for this year, for 2021, we still wanted to, to achieve that objective, but it was just more important that we managed to do that in a safe way. And so that applied to the public who were coming to the event, but it also applied to all the athletes, to all the support personnel who've entrusted us to deliver an event safely. So yeah, it was that that, that I found um, so it's really a important. So to a certain degree, it's also then a, a reconnection as such because, yeah, when we all, we're all guilty of it. When we do our roles, we kind of sometimes get detached as we get sort of target fixated on the next task that we've got to do and it gets very process-driven. And it sounds to me that, mm. that the part of that was sort of reconnecting really with the broader sort of yeah, objective and work. It was really nice. So what, what yeah, else was there? Absolutely. So, you said, so you said there was that and then... Yeah, and then I think... Yeah, no, no, that's good. Yeah, no, it's good to tease that out. And then I think, you know, another one just personally in terms of, you know, the way we work, you know, that COVID-19 showed, and particularly during the events when you're being thrown different curveballs left, right and centre, you know, there's locked, you know, there's a lockdown during the event. There's, um, you know, suspected case, you know, the, the hotel worker tests positive and, and that throws up new challenges. So the way that we work, you know, I really reflected on the importance of remaining cool and calm under pressure. That was a, a big learning for me because during the event, when there's so many different things happening around you and, and there's so many different directions that you're being pulled in, keeping that level head helps you stay focused, helps you, you know, make sure that you're, you're on track and that you're actually 
focusing in on the the most important areas. So that was something that we we lived and breathed through, and and by doing that, you help the business as well. So that's a, and that could be even that could be a challenge because I'm not sure about you, but one of the things I've been sort of looking at is like how do you stay motivated, busy, hungry, and you know I follow people like Andrew Huberman, um, who's a neuroscientist uh, from Stanford. He's got a great podcast, Andrew Huberman uh lab podcast and the yeah he talks about the you know, the power of being motive like of being essentially competitive and driven mm. and you know the the, the importance of, a, of of adrenaline and uh to get stuff done and it's interesting in terms of psychology because you want to be focused you want to be if you're too calm basically if you haven't got enough stress <laughs> you may not perform to the best oh, of your absolutely. abilities so, so trying to find that sort of be still and calm and you know almost yeah. zen like at the same time Without that, let, you know, dropping your output essentially is, is, is well, Sean. It's interesting anyway, because you, it's a challenge. No, no, but that's that. I completely agree. And you know, in the context of the events, there was so much happening. So it was really about trying to keep a level head because you know the the work at times was relentless. Um, now that the events have concluded and we're going back to that sort of more business as usual, it's again finding that motivation, right? Because the urgency the um the sort of the the you know the high high pressure high intensity work has slowed down a little bit so to your point yeah how do you stay motivated when when things die off a little bit as well so um you know and in that sense for me you know i, I do love the role you know uh, sports law has always been something that i've been passionate about and i do i love the area and, and you know for me being part of that um you know, the enforcement of, of really, really good behavioral standards and, um, you know, making sure that sport has a positive impact on everybody who's participating in it. That's the sort of thing that, yeah, again, motivates me. So it's, yeah, it's about finding that motivation. That's brilliant. I love that. It's a lot. Mm. It's good. To, I think it's, you know, it's good one. You'll be open about it. And it's been a trend definitely, I think, over this, over the last few episodes of the podcast that, Lots of in-house counsel in particular, and I think it would go the same for everyone in, in, in law and, and most sectors at the moment are doing a lot of self-reflection and, and you know, what, what mm. is my life really about? What am I doing? Why am I why am I interested in this sort of area? And it's great <laughs> that, that you, so you're reconnecting with that. And it's certainly the case for me and with Laura's born the work that we do. It's kind of, you know, when I say to people, when COVID hit, we kind of thought, or I thought, what we do is a bit ridiculous you know we talk about legal issues in sport to a degree yeah. and there's people saving people and i kind of felt like yeah really really reflecting on sort of my life's work as such and um and then we talk about it and we're like, oh, actually no people it still has a huge sport has such a huge place in people's lives and um and obviously making sure that it's one well and as you were saying all the 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 issues around safety and people are informed about what's going on they know how to you know how to share information know where to get that information from it kind of you know, re actually realigned us with our overall objective which is to help people understand the legal issues um that impact the sports sector right that was our yeah, and, objective and, 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 it, it took a while to realign when it first kicked off yeah exactly and, and and in that broad sense it was also about you know what is the place of sport you know what is the place of sport in society and you know for for people in melbourne who'd been through such a tough time this was an opportunity to bring some joy back to, you know, the daily life. So it, it, it sort of shined a focus on, you know, sports place within society and, and what it can do. But of course, as I say, and, and, and it's really, you know, I, I do want to stress this, sports places in society still 
had to fit within delivering an event safely. And you can't mm. run these events and and sort of bring joy if, if it's actually going to lead to more detriment to the public health and and and, and society generally. No, absolutely. Um, and I get that. And it's interesting, yeah, we've obviously had uh, over the last few weeks the European Super League, which has also focused everyone's attention in Europe um, mm. on 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 where where is the role of football, what is the role mm. of sport. And it's an interesting it's an interesting dichotomy at the moment. We've been watching that, interestingly. Yeah. You know, we've been watching that with interest from Australia. And well, I think yeah, you know, it's a really interesting, you know, you guys are on top of the sort of relationship with um in terms of the, at least the debate. In terms of the relationship with betting and sport and where that is, and we've got this, you know, this dichotomy at the moment. There's lots of sports need more money, and they're looking mm. for places they can get money. And so, you know, a lot of the focus and attention is driving revenues, looking for investment, obviously to sustain itself. And at the same time, we've got the on the other side of the equation, as you were saying, is the the sort of social impact of sport. And it seems to me that there's this, you know almost like confusion really <laughs> at times or lack of clarity in terms of really what is sport is it one is it something that is you know has this big societal impact is it something that's more for just for profit and entertainment is it both mm. or is it, is it mm. um, for me it's on a spectrum but you know how the how you can deal with that from a government perspective and sport perspective is, is just fascinating you know and all these you know it seems like as you said with relation to your work and how you you guys are all working together it's kind of accelerated a process that was going that may have taken five years that's now accelerated into to sort of one year um yeah in, ter- in, in terms of um just moving on before before we you know, wrap up I just want to find out so that would be your, your sort of personal reflections from a work perspective then um although we did touch on the work what else did you in terms of you know obviously staying calm i guess was both personal and and work um when you're under pressure but what else was there were there other things that that, that you sort of reflected on over this period yeah i mean i think from the you know the event perspective um uh, you know i touched on the you know the need to collaborate more and i think we're you know we're doing a lot more of that now and i think the, the way we the way we engage with our clients and and the way we work as a team you know has changed so i think that that, that that's been a, a really nice development through through the work we've been doing um certainly when I reflect on how we got through all the challenging times, you've got to be ready to expect the unexpected, but there really is no substitute for the preparation and for the work you do in the lead up. And, you know, to talk about the, you know, to give you an example, um, when, you know, we, we touched on the, the fact that it, part of the role was dealing with and managing suspected and suspected cases of COVID-19. So in the lead up to the tournament, we were preparing for, um, you know, and developing processes, protocols to deal with suspected cases and positive cases, In you know, if that occurred at in a player um, during the quarantine, during the event, um, the workforce, fans, and we were running simulations and we were practicing our response and, you know, refining that and, you know, through simulation so that we were ready to go um, when, when the circumstances arise. And I think that's something that, you know, we can all learn from, that ultimately when it comes time to perform, the, the way you prepare is ultimately the way you end up performing. And, and, and we did work very hard in the lead up to, to try and, 
um, think about all the different possible permutations and combinations. And as I say, you can't think of everything, but the more work you do in the lead up, the more likely you are to succeed. I think that's such a great point. And uh, yeah, I'm reflecting on what you're saying, going, that's so true <laughs> with my performance, yeah. uh, yeah. sports performance with things. Um, also, I remember we had, um, um, when we did a, we did a, um, uh, a working group led led by Murray Rosen on dealing with online dispute resolution, and we had uh, a top mediator who was part of the group who said that actually doing online mediation was proving to be slightly easier, at least from the mediator's perspective, than doing it in person because people were forced to prepare. Mm. So rather than just turn up to the mediation, not have any real dialogue, not really respond to the mediator, it was like people had to engage early with the mediator. And so they were coming out to going to the mediations, and particularly I think he focused on commercial mediation, but in in those mediation, in those hearings, they were much more productive. And so I think, yeah, that's a really you know, good... Yeah, point. and as I say, it's, it's, it's something that we saw from running the event, but I say it's equally applicable to all aspects of, you know, my role. And then also I think back to, you know, past roles that I've had and certainly the same, the same applies. So yeah, it's something that we'll definitely take forward and, and, and I'll certainly take that with me into wherever the future takes me. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for reaching out as well, because this all started basically because we started a Twitter conversation about, hey, you should yeah. Yeah, do one on the Australian Open. Said, yeah, well, that's great. Would you like to be on the podcast? So that's a yeah, delight. To, thanks for taking to, me out. Oh, no, brilliant. I really enjoyed it. Um, so much there to take away from. I'm sure many people listening, whether they're you know aspiring to get into the sector, working in the sector currently, they'll be able to really appreciate uh, what you went through, um, particularly if they're in in-house roles or advising um, sports mm. organizations um, at the various stages but th- th- thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and being and your experience and being willing to do so I think you know on that spirit of collaboration it's one of the reasons why yeah we do the podcast is that so people can get some insight insight sorry into sort of the, the people uh, and the work that they do behind the scenes rather than just that, that we do events and we'd like to think we do excellent events obviously and conferences but sometimes yeah. just having an, uh, what we would consider to be a normal chat with someone rather than something a bit more formal um, mm. leads to a sort of a different type of knowledge sharing that can still be equally as powerful. So, yeah, I really appreciate your time. Yeah, um, no, it's been an absolute pleasure. It's late there. So, yeah, you can go to bed now. Very good. No, thank you very much for having me. I've really enjoyed it.